Hi, this is Cassius Felicella, and you're listening to Homebrew, a podcast dedicated to everything startup related. My guest today is Ian Burgess. Ian is the co-founder and president of Validair. Validair enables energy companies to measure and capitalize on emission reductions. As well, they manage operations and trading profits using the only product data cloud for energy commodities. His team was also part of the Summer 16 batch at YC, and we feel incredibly lucky to have him on the program today. So I was speaking with Colin Cartier, another YC alum, not too long ago, and he observed a lot of people who go on to do great things later in life. They got used to working incredibly hard at a very early age. I mean, you're incredibly accomplished yourself as an individual. You got a PhD from Harvard in applied physics. Your team this year in Q1 announced 900% growth in US operations. I mean, from that comment, what do you make of it? And how do you kind of see what he said? I, I mean, at a high level, I do agree with that. The way I always think about kind of early career optimization, and I feel like I didn't get enough of advice like this or think about this enough early in my career. I probably didn't think about it, not at all. But is that one, you want to challenge yourself. One of the reasons why you want to challenge yourself as much as you possibly can early in your career is that you really want to build a lot of the work habits that maximize your efficiency as early as possible. Because I always think it's like work-life balance really is a trade-off generally in the sense that you can't be infinitely, you can't accomplish infinite number of things in your work and your life. But generally that trade-off is going to hold true or it's going to be rigid only at a constant level of efficiency, right? So it's like if you can accomplish, let's say 10 things of a given size in a day, then you really do have to divide those 10 units of, of accomplishment in a day between work goals and life goals. But if you can find a way to be able to produce 30 units in a day, right, then, uh, then your work-life balance is like you get something for nothing. Your work-life balance becomes easier to optimize on both sides. And that also helps because generally your demands on your work-life and your outside-of-work-life only increase the older you get, at least up to a point. For the average, if you look at kind of the average demographics of when people have kids and how many kids they have. So for the average person who becomes who chooses to become a parent, the amount that you have to squeeze from a stone in terms of your in terms of your work life balance probably peaks sometime in your late 30s, early 40s. And so it's really in your interest to develop those habits that lead to efficiency as early as possible so that you have better options when you need to have options. You're generally not going to maximize your efficiency unless you're working on something that's hard enough that it really forces you to maximize your efficiency for your peak performance. Following up on that point, over the years, have you noticed your motivators or the things that incentivize you change at all? And what did they look like maybe 10 years ago as opposed to today? I think there's two ways to answer that question. I think if you if you thought about, let's say you were you were imagining you were in your 60s, or whatever, you're looking back on your career or your family life, and you say, you know, in what priority do you rank certain priorities in your life, kind of your family and your career, et cetera, and you measure that over your life. I think if I do that now and I kind of look back up until call it, 
undergrad, you know, kind of the start of my career. I don't think that has changed much. But then if I ask myself, what am I obsessing over the most or what's causing me the most stress at any given time, that will change over time, right? And generally it's some like how much you stress over something is going to correlate with, call it like the product of, if you imagine like the product of two variables. So one variable is like how much you value something and the other variable is how much work you have left to do on that thing or how much you feel like you're in a good place with that thing. So it's kind of like, if I look at that as an example, right? When I was in school, I found school pretty easily, e- easy in undergrad, but uh, you know, I had just met my wife, you know, and obviously family has always been kind of the most important thing to me. And so I think I spent a lot more time worrying about my relationship and what became my marriage than I did about my career because, you know, at the time we were in a foundational time of building our relationship, whereas school was pretty easy. You know what I mean? And so, you know, as the years progress, you know, you'll have some times where it feels like your career is falling apart and your family life's pretty stable. And then you'll be stressing a lot about your career and you'll have other times in your life where maybe something's happening with your kids or whatever, you got some stuff going on where your family feels like, you know, you're just trying to hold your family together, but your career is kind of stable. And then you're going to end up obsessing more about your family. But I don't think that um, that's necessarily perfectly correlated to just the variable of how much you value a particular part of your life overall. Do you think that made you a better founder though? Like always being very conscious of that balance? I think the high level answer is probably no. And I think if you look at founders that are of kind of the most successful companies, let's say, that have emerged in the last 20 years. Some of them have balanced lives. Some of them really don't. I don't think the correlation is particularly strong. And I also think that, you know, if you generally, if you're trying to study the population of people that have, you know, founded really iconic companies, you're looking at a very small, very not representative, very weird kind of subset of the population. And so what what certainly wouldn't feel like balance to a lot of people might feel like balance to Elon Musk. You know what I mean? I don't really know. I think there's like, in, in terms of kind of like a well-being, you can always feel it at this physiological level. There's a certain amount of, like you can only be out of equilibrium kind of physiologically for so long. And so generally, I think most people that are very effective become good at regulating that equilibrium. And the way that they do it is going to depend on the person because everyone's kind of got a different equilibrium, right? And that can vary from anything from diet to things like, you know, how you plan your schedule. But work-life balance, the way that I think most people early in their career think about it, I don't think there's a particularly robust correlation between more work-life balance in the, again, in the way I think most people think about it and success. Yeah, I I definitely do agree with that. And Switching a bit on the topics here, we were speaking prior to our call about how there has been a bigger emphasis throughout history to shoot for the moon, so to speak, on projects. And while I'll argue that taking risk is an inherently good thing because it helps you grow, there does seem to be an underallocation of things like solidarity and prestige to helping your community. Like, why do you think there is such an overemphasis on that compared to? the smaller things that can collectively add a lot to society if we all do them. 
I think the root of that trend is actually on the demand side and not on the supply side. And I'll explain what I mean in a second, right? It's like, in other words, as anyone who runs a business knows, you have to pay your people at the end of the day. And so if there's a lot of people going to work and mostly in paid work, right, on moonshots, that means that on the demand side, people are demanding moonshots more than there's a demand for more bread and butter. And I think that actually makes a lot of sense, right? It's basically the reason for that is that there's a lot of bread and butter around. And so if you think about, you know, one of the things that are that's interesting about this time that we live in is that resources are relatively abundant. Certainly that's true in rich countries. But if you look at, for example, global food production, if distributed optimally, is plenty to feed everybody that, that lives on anywhere in the world today. Overeating is a bigger cause of, of uh, death than undereating now, again, globally, et cetera, et cetera. So you have this abundance of resources. You also have an abundance of labor. One question I always, I asked myself once, and I actually modeled this out for Canada. How many people do you know personally that work in a job that's directly related or directly required for meeting your basic needs? And I think if you do that, you'll find, particularly as an urban dweller, that number is quite small. And so I once did this calculation to try to figure out basically what percentage of our total workforce in Canada is tied to providing basic necessities in the sense that if you removed a significant chunk of that workforce, lose out on some of those necessities. And I got a number of something like 25%, which means we're in a situation where, call it three quarters of the labor force is you know, both free and incentivized to focus on things that are not meeting your basic necessities. And so if you think about, again, if you assume that the demand side of the marketplace is working rationally, what would you expect those things to be? So the first thing you would expect would be that you have more people focusing on risk in general. One, the, you see a lot more people working in what I'll call collectively bureaucratic type professions. We have way more regulations now than we did in 1800, partly because it's possible to enforce more regulations now than we, it was in 1800. If you look at uh, a world where you have 75% of your population is not required to meet the basic needs, then you have a lot more risk that you now have the capacity to mitigate. So one side of risk mitigation, you have this kind of growth of bureaucracy across you know, in the public and the private sector. The other side is you have more people working on these moonshot projects, right? If you think about, you know, for example, micronuclear reactor kind of stuff or, or plant-based meat or any of these things that are kind of moonshots looking to make a big dent in, uh, you know, climate change. And so I think you definitely have the marketplace is redirecting resources compared to past generations towards things that are fo- more focused on risk and more focused, whether that's kind of long-term chronic risks or it's reducing the likelihood of short-term catastrophic risk. And that seems very rational. I think the other area where you're seeing an increasing amount of investment is what I would call subjective well-being, right? Kind of beyond uh, basic nourishment and shelter and healthcare and, and, and all that stuff. And subjective well-being, there's all kinds of things that go into there. Some of those things good, some of those things not good, right? There's like probably in the not good category, there's the generalized, what I call the generalized opiate, basically things that provide a short-term rush that are addictive that may not be good in the long term. 
whether that's like social media or video games or actual opiates, it's again, unsurprising that you would have, because you have more free labor around and people like short-term dopamine rushes, that there's more money going into giving people dopamine in different ways. But then you also see, you know, I mean, the fitness industry, right, is growing all kinds of community building, different kinds of communities are sprouting up. And I think, you know, you have some chronic problems resulting from the way those things are being built. And I'll give you some examples, right? Obviously, there's kind of like the generalized opiate is a problem that now that we have more resources to build them, that we need to think about how we, uh, like, what's the right balance to strike. And, uh, and then the other one is like, I think if you look at community building efforts, I think a lot of people are making efforts to build communities. I think the big shift that we're seeing is that it's become easier to build a community based on shared personality and shared interests rather than based on geography. And it's not clear that that's universally a bad thing. It certainly has consequences that are good. There's lots of people that would have been outcast in a world where you were, you know, you can never leave the small town you grew up in, but now they can um, find a fairly large global community of people that are like them that really kind of give them that community and solidarity, right? Um, and uh, and you see that everything from like, you know, LGBT groups, for example, um, all the way to things, you know, it's like support groups for people that have certain rare diseases, right? It's kind of like, there's all kinds of those things down to the kind of more mundane people that are interested in a particular kind of fan fiction. But, uh, but obviously I think, you know, there's also um, some downsides to that trend just in that our whole structures of accountability are still built on geography. So you have this weird situation where you, you know, the laws that you abide by and the taxes you pay are built on uh, a community that's defined by geography, whereas increasingly your empathy bonds, and the, the people that you feel close reciprocal relations with are increasingly divided by different boundaries. So on that point of well-being you brought up, what do you think the future of tech looks like when it comes to that point? Like, of course, technological advancements in medicine, for instance, have allowed us to live longer. But in extreme cases, we've seen Facebook creating augmented reality. There's rumors of Apple wanting to do the same thing. I mean, how far should we go with some of these things? So I generally see, if you think about technology as a tool to do things, whether they're good things or bad things, or you know, a mixture of both or in between, I see the proliferation of technology as basically unavoidable. I think it is a certainty that in 100 years, we will know how to do more things than we, do, we know now. <laughs> Right. Um, I think there are a few big challenges that we are going to have to figure out how to deal with that kind of result from that inevitability. And some of them, I think we're well on the path to uh, doing some of them, not so much. And I think the so, so let me give you an example of a few of them. I think the first thing that we're going to see as a trend that increases, as, unless, you know, somehow something catastrophic happens and we all get way poorer. But I think that is a trend that I think we actually are well on our way like to knowing what the solution likely is, is that the shift in demand side behavior, both politically and economically, going from focusing primarily on gain to focusing primarily on risk is going to have a number of implications 
throughout the economy that I think people shouldn't be blindsided by if they're used to thinking about you know, economic models that assume that, that maximizing output is always going to win the day, right? And one of them that seems kind of obvious to me is somewhat of a retreat of globalization, at least insofar as we talk about the supply chains for critical infrastructure and critical goods. The, I think we're not going to see, and I don't think we are seeing, a retreat in globalization of the flow of information and ideas. But I think we are seeing a decoupling of that from the flow of physical stuff, where I think we are, we are starting to see more protectionism, and I think we will continue to see more protectionism. And I think the mistake that I see a lot of people make, you know, smart people make, is they're like, oh, yeah, just those kind of dumb rural people, whatever, they, uh, that they don't know what's good for them. They don't realize how this is going to make people poorer. Whereas, like, I think the right way to think about it, you know, it's almost like the, the analogy I like is like the evolution of the economy is following the evolution of aircraft design. Whereas like at the beginning, you know, kind of early days of the airplane, all we wanted to do was make the airplanes faster and more efficient and be able to fly farther. But then at some point, we stopped making the airplanes faster and we started actually making them more expensive if it made them crash less. And so we did things like we built redundancy in the engines. We built redundancy in the wiring systems. We built all kinds of redundancies. If you look at the design of airplanes, and that makes sense because we're making the system less fragile. It's less efficient, but it's also less fragile. You can think about the analogy of supply chains, right? If I have, for example, for all my hydraulic lines on an airplane, I have to have ones that flow through the left side and the right side of the airplane, as an example, or the top and the bottom. You can think about that as like an example of protectionism, right? Where it's like, if you imagine that the top of the airplane and the bottom of the airplane were different countries, right? It's like basically... I've put a border, a high, high border tariff on hydraulic systems that cross the border of the top of the airplane to the bottom of the airplane. And I've done that with the incentive of making it more resilient to tail risk. And so I think you're starting to see the same thing in a bunch of things. You're seeing it in high tech, right? You're starting to see a decoupling, for example, of the Chinese tech ecosystem and the American tech ecosystem. I think you're, you're seeing it in medical supplies, right? Certainly the pandemic has accelerated the, uh, the, the development of more redundancy and more policy to support supply chain redundancy uh, globally in medical supplies. I think you're going to see it with critical commodities like energy. And I think you'll have kind of a confluence of people looking for stability against geopolitical transitions, as well as it becoming a very useful tool and also a convenient tool, frankly, for enforcing better uh, climate accounting. I think you're going to see more and more, you know, probably first it'll be carbon border adjustment tariffs on energy commodities. But I think the carbon part and the border part are both aligned with um, incentives that I think are rational for countries where the, the demand centers care more about risk than abundance. The other thing is when you're looking at the, how much cost to abundance people are willing to put up with for reduction in risk. The other thing is when you're looking at the, how much cost to abundance people are willing to put up with for reduction in risk. I always think it's past a certain point of where you've met both your basic needs. And I think that that's like 70K, call it in the US. I think I've seen the study that pegs it at something like this. But it's like people's, let's say, happiness, for that point, it increases with their, their, their income roughly linearly. And then after that point, it increases more like linearly with the exponent of the, of the income. Your happiness increases by a linear increment every time your, your income goes up by 10X. The second thing 
that I think is a real challenge is that as the pace of technology complexity increases, which I think it will because complexity will increase with the the density and connectedness of social networks, which as more people get connected to more people through online networks is going to be increasing. And also cities are getting more dense, right? Generally, the, the pattern. So anyway, you have technology getting more complex and changing at a rate that's accelerating. You also have people that are able to sort based on interests and abilities in a way that's getting more efficient. And you're ending up with a place where, frankly, and you can see this in many places, where people that are building technology are just a lot smarter and a lot more knowledgeable than the people that are trying to regulate it. And I think that has big negative implications if we don't figure out how to fix that. I would guess that a likely part of the fix, which is going to be counterintuitive for governments now, is that they're going to have to pay certain bureaucrats more, a lot more, in exchange for a lot higher standards on performance and potentially a lot greater restriction on corruption. I don't know if you ever read Andrew Yang's book. He has a proposal that we should pay politicians way more than we pay them now, but we should basically ban them from working in many types of private sector jobs after they leave office, because that can become a tit-for-tat kind of form of corruption. That's probably the second trend that I think is likely to happen that I think is we got to figure out how to deal with. The third trend we've kind of already talked about, right, is like, how are we going to deal with people's networks of empathy bonds? I wouldn't say they're necessarily growing or shrinking. They're probably growing slightly in number and shrinking slightly in depth. But more importantly, I think it's that their boundaries align less and less with their spheres of accountability. I'm starting to behave. If you look at all the accountability bonds, kind of taxes and laws and all that stuff and borders, I'm um, increasingly treating everyone that I'm accountable to in a transactional way. Whereas I'm also increasingly building empathy with people that are a different set of people increasingly that I generally, I don't have accountability to, right? Like if I have like kind of an online interest group that I hang out with all the time, spread all over the world, really, I have actually a lot less accountability to them than somebody who has the same strength of bonds with their people in their local neighborhood. And then the fourth one, I think as technology gets better, the opiates are going to get better. And I'm talking about generalized opiates, right? Not just literally opiates. So I'm including everything from social media, video games, um, like anything that goes after that kind of targets the short-term dopamine high. And, uh, you know, how we balance kind of the long-term incentives and the, and, the, and the abundance of ways to get short-term dopamine hit is something we haven't really figured out how to deal with. And it may be that it, it deals with itself on its own. It's not as clear that people, uh, for some of these new kinds of generalized opiates, how persistent, like if you look over 20-year time scales, the addictions are, or whether they're more transient, because they're less chemically addictive than physical opiates. But the other thing that's kind of interesting, that's somewhat related to that, there's going to be a greater ability for people to change the reality. And I think that is going to have, like as the cost of changing your reality, as that gets cheaper to make different fantasies real, I think you're going to get some really interesting ethical shifts in medicine, but as well potentially in other areas that you know, are kind of interesting. And, I, and they definitely have some, there's some good sides and some bad sides. And I think that my hope is that the equilibrium as these fields become more mature, people are going to find the right equilibrium, right? So I kind of think of like things that you can do to kind of change your reality that you wouldn't be able to do 100 years ago. You know, one that's a hot topic now is like 
transition. If you want to transition from male to female or female to male, one of the reasons why generally that was not something that was done as much 100 years ago is that it was very hard to do, right? Like no one would make the right to transition a human right, the right to biologically transition or medically transition, I mean, a human right before the medicine was developed. And uh, you see the same thing in kind of other areas, right? Like if you look at the line between treatment of dysfunction or, or, you know, some kind of a medical condition and performance enhancements is becoming increasingly blurred. And that's like everywhere from cosmetic surgery to, you know, you've probably heard of some of these things, microdosing and people who take, you know, I guess older men probably prim- primarily who take steroids to raise their testosterone levels to kind of closer to that of younger men. Um, and I think that what you're going to see and what you already are seeing is that um, we have in some ways a whole medical profession and medical regulation that is built around the treatment of harms. Like you have to show that you have some kind of a deficiency and then you can get access to treatments to treat it. But I think I expect to see more and more that to go away for the medical system to evolve a little bit more to look at cost and benefit of an analysis, but make it less dependent on whether you can show that somehow in some attribute, you're significantly disadvantaged compared to the average person, right? Or you have some kind of a disorder. Now, when it relates to minors, I think there's a whole other kind of trend that's kind of interesting. Like, should you let minors performance enhance? And when, when should it be their decision? And I think there's going to be a trend that has also back to abundance of uh, resources and abundance of labor, abundance of labor in particular, that will, I think, push the incentives towards giving minors more free choice in things in general earlier in their life. I think that trend will exist whether or not that turns out to be beneficial for their long-term well-being. Oh, absolutely. And do you think institutions like OpenAI, where it's sort of this collective for good mantra, do you think more of those will exist as well in the future? I think that the line between, like, or the, the difference between what OpenAI is doing, let's say, in AI research and what Google is doing from the perspective of how it's going to have long-term impacts on society, I think are probably not that different. And I'm not sure. I mean, obviously, there's some very smart people that would disagree with that position. I don't think making technology kind of advanced AI open source necessarily, I guess I just don't see it as being, as it addressing really the biggest challenges that we have with AI. And I also tend to believe, right, as you look at kind of as social networks get more interconnected, I tend to believe that it's getting harder and harder to keep a secret anyway. So even if you look at like AI research that the NSA is doing, I think if you look in the 20-year time horizon, the extent to which initiatives like OpenAI accelerate the abundance of access to information on how to build the best AI in the world, it's not going to move the dial as much as they think. So I think the tail risks of AI and kind of like the ethical challenges are important, but I would be surprised in the long term, at least if the research arm of open AI is a big part of, of uh, finding the solution. I want to jump back to some of the points we discussed prior to this call again. And one of them that really stuck with me was that observation you made about the misalignment between what people want to be versus what they enjoy doing. 
and how it often leads to a lot of unhappiness and lack of fulfillment. And you also say that a founder, like any other role, is not primarily a title that you get, but a job that you do. So why do you think people are so fragmented in this way? And what can we do to not only improve our situation, but change our mindset at the end of the day? I think one of the things that I actually suspect is going to change sooner than we think is if you look at the way the education system is set up, like every title that you earn is backward looking rather than forward looking. It'd be easy to say that like the education system, you kind of learned that you're going to earn a bunch of badges and uh, the CEO title is just like another badge that you earned. And that's not to diminish that, like, obviously in school, you do stuff too. But I think the thing that kind of jars people the longer they've been in school is that you do first and then you get credit or you get the badge or whatever it is. And so it's like, when I got my PhD, that was like literally the last day that I ever had to be a PhD student. (laughs) You know what I mean? And so I'm used to thinking about what do I have to do to get the PhD? But I'm not conditioned to think about what do I have to do once I have the PhD, right? Because like, well, I have a PhD. Like I can, I could die tomorrow and I'd still have a PhD. Whereas in like, once you have a job, it's completely flipped around. It's like the easiest thing, if you think about it, literally the easiest thing that I ever did in this building this company was give myself the title co-founder, <laughs> right? It's like, all I had to do is file some incorporation docs and I've gotten the title of co-founder. And so it's like, there's this weird reversal that I think people don't spend enough kind of conscious energy thinking about whereby you spent your whole life in education doing a task associated with a title and then getting the title. Whereas then when you get into the working world, it's the other way around. You get the title first and then you have to do the task. And you only keep the title as long as you're doing the task. And so, yeah, I think that's kind of the reason. And probably the reason why, I mean, I guess I don't really know if people really had this identity crisis as much, if this was the same pattern you saw as much before. But I would suspect the extent to which exists is increasing over time. My guess it's because people are spending more time in school. Like they're spending much more time in school of their adult life before they get their first job. And if there is a secondary reason, it might be just as social networks kind of are more interconnected and more broad. Generally, you have more people spend more of their attention on a smaller number of individuals than they did before. So if you kind of look at like celebrities, right? One of the reasons social media has made the most successful celebrities way more successful and the most successful athletes way more successful because it's possible for them to command a way larger percentage of the world's eyeballs than it was when there was no social media and transportation was expensive. And so I think that probably also encourages a little bit more of a kind of winner-take-all mindset in career planning where it's like, if I don't have a path to becoming a CEO, then I'm a failure, right? Which is like really a terrible ethic for everyone to have in life because by definition, you can't have that many prime ministers or CEOs. That's a very good point. I don't think anyone's actually said that to me before. I'm, <laughs> I'm really impressed with that comment. It's counterintuitive, right? I mean, I was born in 87. I'm aging myself. I left academia in 2016, right? Uh, almost 29 years of my life before I uh, 
had to face that reversal of the accomplishment versus the badge. Do you think people just have more time to overthink things now? Like, could it be as simple as that? There is the job prospects for people that don't spend lots and lots of time in school are diminishing. Some of that is aligned with kind of, I think, what makes economic sense from the demand side. Some of it probably isn't. Certainly in the public sectors and heavily regulated sectors, there's an over demand for credentials or there's, there, there's, a, there's an artificial restriction on, on the job supply based on credentials that probably don't add much value to the job that's being done. I also just don't think that people think more or less than they did before. I think people just think about different things. My experience is that the extent to which people's mind races, whether it's like on problem solving or it's ruminating or wording, like those traits, I think, are a lot more innate than people give it credit for. And if you look at like, you know, the psych, psych literature, right? There's kind of the Turkheimer's three laws of behavioral genetics. For many, many behavioral traits, it's like roughly half the variance is explainable by genes. Kind of 10% or less of the variance is explainable by shared environment, right? The environment that siblings would share. Now, the other 40% is unexplained, which is likely uh, comes from a combination of measurement error and pure chance, right? Down to the kind of molecular fluctuations in your developing brain. Yeah, generally, my experience, and that kind of drives with my day-to-day experience. My my day-to-day experience is that the people that I know worry the most, the the thing they have most in common is family members that worry a lot. (laughs) Right. Fair enough. I, I get where you're coming from there. As a final question, I wanted to return to a podcast that I listened to recently with Andrew Cortina, one of the founders of Venmo. And he was observing that he doesn't really understand why we compare ourselves to each other as often that we do, because a lot of stuff is out of our control. For instance, even things that feel inherent to us, like hard work, perhaps that's hereditary. Perhaps the fact that we're ambitious is because of a teacher that we had in school that was completely out of our control. I guess I just find it interesting how we're so fixated on achieving all these badges, getting these brownie points, even though at the end of the day, if we do look more internally, I think not only can we succeed more, but also be more fulfilled. Yeah. And I think generally, if there's one key to both success and general life satisfaction, no matter what your circumstances are, it's having an internal locus of control, which means that you focus on the things that you have control over first. And so it's less of you hang less your hat on, oh, you know, if this thing doesn't happen to me, or if only this person did this or whatever, then I'd be happy. Generally, people who build dependencies in their psychological well-being on things that they don't have control over tend to be less happy. And that's not a moral statement. That's like just that. Most people accept the fact that like things that you have full control over are more likely to happen if you want them to happen than things you don't have full control over, right? Like that's kind of a, a very amoral not immoral, amoral kind of statement of something that has to be true. And so from that, it would directly follow that people who focus their strategies on building fulfillment or being effective on on the things they have control, like building up from the things they have control first, are going to tend to be happier and more effective. And the way I always think about it, right, because like there's lots of luck in startups, but it's like averaged over long periods of time, most people are going to get some bad luck and some good luck. Sure. Some people are certainly going to get more bad luck than others, and some people are certainly going to get more good luck than others. But if you look at like 
if you look at kind of the broad category of people that are would say would you would say are most effective in, in any any pursuit, and that can be including the pursuit of fulfillment, it's like they generally tend to ground their attitude in some good things are going to happen, some bad things are going to happen. And my job is to focus on what I can control. And the way I do that is I make myself as resilient as possible to bad outcomes. I think of my most likely bad outcomes. And then I think of what are my plan B and plan C if those happen, right? So it's less about, I spend less time ruminating about, oh, I hope this doesn't happen. I spend more time thinking about, well, if this happens, I want to know what's my next move. And I really try to focus on that. And you see what happens then is I'm still, it's not like the, the odds of the bad thing happening that's out of my control has changed by doing that. But you see how my mindset is focused, spending time thinking about the things that I have under my control. And the same thing with good luck. As the odds of something good increases, the most effective people are going to be thinking about, like, how can I milk this to achieve my goal, whatever that goal is, as effectively as possible? And so what ends up happening, right, and this is true with startups too, you correlate with the time average of your successes and your failures, not the number of successes and failures. So like the people, the individuals, let's say they're you know, trying to accomplish a goal or the startups, for example, that are the most successful, it doesn't look like they just got a bunch of good luck per se. It looks like they found a way to recover quickly from all of the bad luck. And then the second they got good luck, they milked the shit out of it. And they also didn't try to optimize, over-optimize for better luck when they got good luck. Like the classic mistake I see founders get when they have good luck, you know, one investor, let's say, is interested in them, is that then they say, ooh, I wonder if I can get really cute and with my negotiations and my shopping this term sheet around, and I'm going to try to get four investors. And then they end up with none because they've overplayed their hand. Whereas like you kind of be as Bayesianly reasonable in all situations as possible and kind of focus on what's going to give you the best expected outcome, given that... Um, Obviously, you can't afford to, like, you have to over-index on making sure that you don't get zero, you know what I mean, run out of money, because that's kind of a catastrophic event. If you don't account for, put extra weight on it, you won't end up with an optimal solution if you just optimize for maximizing your expectation value at every decision. Having that kind of attitude, you know, that's what I call kind of like internal loss of control, but it's also level-headedness, makes you um, a lot more likely to get the right amount out of the good luck that you get and be able to have another move when bad luck happens. That's it. I want to thank Ian for coming on today. Not only was it a pleasure to speak with him, but a privilege to hear that level of analytical thinking when it comes to ideas in our world today. I'm Cassius Felicella, and this is Homeroom. Be sure to check us out on LinkedIn, YouTube, and Twitter at Homeroom Podcast. Thanks for listening.